Job chapter 1, we will look at verses 6 through 12, and then verses 18 to 22 in chapter 1, and then we'll go with uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and then you begin to get the unraveling of Job's life and possessions, picking it back up here in chapter 1 at verse 18. While he, a messenger, was yet speaking, telling Job of what's happened to his possessions, there came another messenger, verse 18, and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they're dead." And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now chapter 2, verse 6, a second appearance of Satan before the Lord. And God says, verse 6, Behold, Job is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan, verse 7, chapter 2, went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is God's word. Now we're beginning this Sunday a, a, a small series in Job. Job is 42 chapters. We're going to take seven weeks. And um, where we were in Revelation before uh, Easter season, first quarter of this year, uh, Revelation is more of a church and world drama, while Job is more of a personal drama. I'm organizing my preaching of it kind of like a play. There'll be seven acts over seven weeks. Not that any play has seven acts. That's too long for a play. But each act in a play is a collection of scenes that together tell a story. And the story Job tells is a faith story. It's not a suffering story. It's a story about faith that involves suffering. And the story of Job, simply put, is this, and I'll repeat this a number of times as we go through this series. The story of Job is this, if you want it in a sentence. Can a person continue to trust God when every benefit for doing so seems gone? 
This is Job. Can we continue to trust God? Present active tense. Is faith this one-time moment back in the past when you walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer with somebody whose name you can't remember? Is it something that happened to you at a camp? Is it, those are the initiating points. That's the beginning of the walk with the Lord. But ongoing faith, is ongoing faith possible when every benefit, every human benefit for trusting God seems to, to be stripped away? This is Job. Now, there are seven main voices in Job. There's God's voice. There's Satan's voice. There's Job's voice. There's then the three friends and uh, plus one. I'm not overlooking Job's wife, but, but the seven main voices that take up most of the narrative are, are those. And so each week what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take it act one through act seven. And we're going we're gonna to put uh, various scenes from Job into each act one per Sunday. And that'll take us to the end of May. So today is act one. Chapters one and two, as I read them here. You know, I mentioned uh, how before Easter season, we spent first quarter this year in Revelation. And the resounding message that you get out of Revelation is, come Lord Jesus. It's an echo of of Psalm 95, oh come, let us worship the Lord. And, and the centuries of worship bring us to this place at the end of days when we say, come Lord Jesus. That's the message of Revelation. And the message of Job is, come what may. It's a very famous line from Job. It's later in chapter 13, verse 15, where Job says, though he slay me, though he kill me, I will hope in him. We don't know what will come into our lives. And so our faith, a walk with the Lord over the years that you know the Lord, uh, our faith doesn't just need content, what to believe, how to obey. Our faith also needs durability. Now, when we read the book of Job as the audience, if we're putting this in, in uh, a playwright kind of context, we, the audience, know what Job doesn't know. Job doesn't know God put all his chips, as it were, on Job's durability, that even when every self-interested reason for trusting God gets yanked away from Job, Job is still going to be there, worshiping the Lord, which is precisely what Satan challenges God on. Job will punt his faith if you, God, allow me, Satan, to open a can on him. <laughs> and, and God says, okay, I'm game. Do it. Let's see what happens. And God and Satan's interaction is one matter among others raised by this book where we're left with more questions than answers. Uh, we'll see that as we go through. But Job doesn't know what's behind the scenes. And even if he did know what's behind the scenes it would be no less agonizing for him in experience. Uh, we'll see it in uh, chapters 7, uh, chapter 9, chapter 10. Job will say, I loathe my life. Incredible anguish due to suffering the loss of just about everything except his wife and his breath. That's about all he's left with. And, and let's make no jokes about Mrs. Job, his wife. 
preachers are sometimes uh, get on her case. Uh, it, it is her deep distress that compels her to say, curse God and die. Don't be too hard on her for that. She doesn't have the, the loathsome sores, as the text vividly uh, puts it, that Job has, but, but her heart is just as crushed as his is. And she does what Satan says anyone would do. She just does it. She punts her faith. At least it goes into hibernation. If God won't protect us, and he's not my God. What's the use if this kind of thing can happen to us? She's done. Job isn't. He isn't done with God. So he, he fights his wife. Says to her in verse 10 of chapter 2, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He fights her and he shouts at God some too. A moment ago I gave you the, one of the most famous verses in Job. Job 13, 15. Though he slay me... I will hope in him, but I only gave you half the verse. The other half of Job 13, 15 is, yet I will argue my ways to his face. You get both and, double-sided. Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will put my hope in him. I will keep my hope in him. I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. One of the things I hope we accomplish in going through this series, as any series I've done through the years here at First of Anne on suffering, we've looked at lament psalms, we've looked at lamentations, now we're looking at Job, we've intersected with uh, the subject of suffering in a variety of places. It, it's, it really needs to be a, it's a perennial subject in the church. I, I try annually to come at uh, this experience that we all have of suffering uh, and, and show us what the scriptures have to say because it's, it's the common denominator. We're all going through something. If you haven't gone through it yet, you will. If, if you aren't going through it now, it, it's coming later. If you've already been through it, you, you still have the, the memories fresh and the pains and the scars from it. But I hope one of the things you see in, in 13.15, which we'll come back to Job 13.15 in a later message, where he says that it, it, it's... I'm going to do both. I'm going to hope in the Lord and I'm going to argue my ways to his face. I'm going to tell him how, how upsetting this is and frustrating this is. I hope you realize it's not unbelief that shouts its pain and frustration to God. It's belief that does that. Unbelief shouts at blind fate and bad luck. But belief takes our pain not just our, our joys and our gratitudes, but our pain and our sense of forsakenness and abandonment to God and, and, and says, God, what, what gives? How long? We ask why questions and we ask how long questions and when and what and wherefore and, and all of it gets jumbled together sometimes, but that's what belief does. Belief works through these things. Job doesn't know why what's going on is, but he does know to take it all to God. And even if he knew behind the scenes why, he'd still take it to God. That's the man's posture. It's a posture of worship. It says it in verse 20 of chapter 1. He tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. 
Worship is a response we give to God. Come what may. And Job does. He doesn't let his circumstances lead him to the sin of unbelief. We get this a uh, couple of times at the end of verse cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and the end of chapter 10, verse, or chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 10. You get the same reference to, the, to, to in all his ways, Job didn't sin. He didn't sin or charge God with wrong. Verse 22 of chapter 1, verse 10 of chapter 2, in all this Job did not sin with his lips. What's the sin? Contextually, it's unbelief. The thing that Satan wants to accomplish in Job is to get him to not believe anymore. As Satan put it back in chapter 1, uh, verse 11, he'll curse you to, his, uh, to, to your face, God. This doesn't happen. Job will say, and this is skipping ahead to another famous passage. This is in chapter 19. We'll come back to this as well. But I want to read it to you this morning. In fact, it's already been in our service when the Boers were uh, doing uh, uh, music for us and, and the uh, call to worship in Job 19, verses 25 to 27. But I want you to listen to the both and in this as well. Chapter 19, verse 25 For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Hear the both and. Last line in verse 27, my heart faints within me. Verse 25, I know my Redeemer lives, but my heart still faints within me. This is the dual reality that we see in this book. It feels a little bit like what we saw in Revelation. In that Revelation gives us what faith looks like as the end days dawn on a fallen world. Faith is groaning. It's fainting because of intensifying evil. And so the faithful say, come Lord Jesus. But Job's come what may faith. It happens at the beginning of a fallen world. Job is ancient. You know, where he's placed in the Bible, the Bible doesn't lay this out uh, chronologically. It's thought that uh, Job lived as far back as before the Genesis flood. Now, we don't know that for sure, but there's no mention of Israel in his book. There's no mention of covenant. There's no mention of law. So it's, it's plausible that he lived uh, way back, even in the period where Genesis 4 says that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Job is about faith that calls upon the name of the Lord through incredible personal suffering and pain. Job is not about suffering in the abstract. It's about faith in God while suffering. The only one who can do anything about our pain and suffering is God, and that makes the book strangely comforting. Job gets his worst, capital W, worst. Every time I say worst now, think of it in capital W terms. Not all caps, the way my dad used to send his emails, (laughs) but the worst, capital W, Job gets his worst. 
And I titled this Act One, Job's Worst, capital W. And I get worst with a capital W from a minister down in Birmingham named Cameron Cole. He wrote a book called Therefore I Have Hope. It's subtitled 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem in Tragedy. The tragedy that befell Cameron Cole and his wife is uh, their three-year-old son died one night in his sleep. They awaken the next morning to go in and get their little boy and they find him dead in his little toddler bed. It's an awful, awful thing to have to live through. And a few years after that experience, Cameron Cole takes his readers into his worst, as he calls it throughout the book, capital W. And let me just give you a little flavor of how he writes. When your worst, capital W, first strikes, people huddle around you. People constantly come in and out of your home. You're invited to dinner or to social gatherings. After a few months or weeks, though, the rush of people fades. People return to their normal lives. They do not ask as often about how you're doing. Whether it is real or not, you start to feel left behind. You wake up in sorrow each day and feel as if people no longer notice. They've forgotten. As the distance of time increases between the present day and your worst in the past, you feel more and more alone. This is particularly true many years after your worst, capital W, worst. Because your tragedy has come to represent such an integral part of your story. You feel as if a person cannot understand you unless they know you lost a child or a parent or a spouse or that you experienced some trauma in your life. An undercurrent of grief still persists in your consciousness at some level most of the time. You meet people who know nothing about your past and this wordless voice inside you says, this person is never going to understand me unless they know. This loneliness constitutes one of the most bitter and painful elements of your suffering. Now, as we go through Job, we're going to see Job knew that loneliness, even though he's never by himself. In that he's always got his friends sitting with him. Engaging him in conversation about his troubles. That's most of the book, chapters 3 through 37. But Job is the one who got his worst capital W worst, lost his children, lost his wealth, lost his health. His friends turn out to be no comfort. They want to have these philosophical debates at his expense. His, his wife, her faith is dying, uh, hibernating for a, a season. He, he says in, in, in one place, I'm, I'm repugnant to her. And yet he survives. He survives. His faith survives. And in, in that consideration, Job is not depressing. It's actually quite encouraging. Don't read the depressing time that we're in back into Job, this germ warfare season we're in, so that you think in turning to Job, this is a downer. I know what some people are thinking. Why, why of all the books in the Bible could Cole go to, is he going to Job for Pete's sake? I mean, I need some encouragement, man. And you do need encouragement. We all do. But what kind of encouragement do you need? We need the kind that strengthens our faith. 
When we were back uh, in Lamentations a couple years ago, I took us through Lamentations. And one of the things we realized there about lament, one of the truths that I kept trying to bring home to us is that lament is hopelessness refusing to give up hope. Can I quote Gandalf on this particular point from Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite all-time things? You know that place where um, Frodo is saying to Gandalf that he wishes Bilbo would have killed Gollum when Bilbo had the chance? Here's the uh, exchange. Frodo says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Gandalf says, pity? It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it for good or evil before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. And then Frodo says what he really was hoping to say, wanting to say, Gandalf, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides that of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Job was meant to have the things come to him that he didn't want. But the encouragement we gain from it is seeing in Job's real time, we can continue to trust God, even if it seems every human benefit for doing so is stripped away. We'll all get hard things. And, and when we get them, we will wish they had never come to us, especially when you're in the, the middle of it. Can you continue trusting? Present active tense. Not as some invincible saint who has to put on like this doesn't hurt. This is just brush it off. It's okay. No, it's not okay. And it hurts. It hurts worse than anything you thought would hurt like that. But can you continue trusting present active tense that you have a redeemer who cares for you? You don't lose sight of that and will finish the work he started in you come what may I mean another way to ask this is can you love God for God or do you need blessings like he must keep me relatively happy safe healthy dry warm fulfilled and you know living this side of the cross as we do the church that makes a huge difference in these considerations because whereas Job believed he had a redeemer who he would one day know a redeemer a rescuer he means who would come into his sufferings and lift him out of them what Job didn't know is how his redeemer would do that by walking into the same kinds of sufferings he was having that God would put himself in the person of his son personally there Job knew there was a redeemer in most translations, the passage we read in chapter 19 capitalizes Redeemer as a reference to, to God. Job knew that God was a redeeming God. He knew the Redeemer was there. 
What we know is that our Redeemer was here. We know his name. Here and suffered here. And due to that, nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ. Now, in the time I have left, I I, want to give you two takeaways, two things to consider, two things from these scenes that are Act 1 from chapters 1 and 2 here. First, we see Job's worst, capital W, worst. Job's worst, getting his worst, was not purposeless. And second, we see Job's worst, again, capital W, worst. Job's worst was not punishment. Job's worst was not purposeless, that's first, and Job's worst was not punishment. Another way to categorize those two takeaways, if you like looking at it uh, from another angle, is the philosophical problem of suffering. Suffering presents us with a philosophical problem, and it presents us with a personal problem. That is, when we suffer, when we know pain, hardship, unfairness, injustice, whatever form the suffering takes, whatever our worst, capital W, is, when we suffer, is there a purpose in it? That's the philosophical consideration. When we suffer, are we being punished? That's the personal consideration. So first, Job getting his worst was not purposeless. When people struggle with the reality of evil and the personal pain that it inflicts, the personal suffering that comes from its wake, There's often the assumption that because I cannot see a good reason or value or purpose for this, whatever this is, then there isn't one. If I can't see a purpose in it, if I can't see a good reason for this, then there's no way there, there is one. We make ourselves the measure of reason. It's very natural for us to do this. It's even understandable why we think this, because I cannot see a good reason or purpose for this problem, this pain, this suffering, then one must not exist. It's easy for us to go into that mode, but a more modest position, a more faithful position, a more worshipful position, in fact, the position that worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ end up having to take, is if God is there, if this is true, if God is there, and he's all-knowing and all-powerful and all-seeing and has all of time and human existence before him, then it could very well be, I have to stay open to the, to the uh, idea that it could very well be he has purposes for things happening that I don't know and cannot know. Job will repeatedly ask God, repeatedly, for a reason of why all this has happened to him. Why have I lost my holdings? Why have I lost my children? Why do I have these loathsome sores and my, my health is in atrophy? Explain it to me. Many times he'll say it throughout his laments, and God never does. And you say, well, that's not very emotionally satisfying. And I agree, <laughs> it's not. But one of the measures of growth and durability in Christ is that we come to realize that we are not owed emotional satisfaction. And that doesn't make things robotic between God and me. It just means that I have to learn to entrust my entire life, even the parts I don't like, the events and the circumstances and the issues and and whatever else that, that goes under the caption of pain and suffering and trauma and travail, I have to learn to entrust to God my entire life, even as I argue things with him. Chapter 13, verse 15. 
I have to entrust to God that there are reasons and purposes on the grander scale of reality that he sees and knows that I either cannot understand or simply cannot know. Only one of us in this relationship can be God. And by the way, this is nothing you say to people in the middle of their pain. Don't tell people when they're really hurting what I'm telling you right now. I'm giving you the philosophical angle. That's, if you do that with people, you become one of Job's friends, whom he's going to later call miserable comforters. People in pain do not need your philosophical wrangling unless they are asking for that and saying, what do you think about this? Help me make sense of it. And then you can very carefully move in. But, but saying, you know, only one of us in this relationship be God, you, you don't say that to somebody when they're hurting. I can't make myself the measure of all reason. And to have a God, think about it this way while we're on the philosophical point, to have a God who must answer to me, to have a God who can never contradict me, can never disappoint me, is to have a God of my own making. And that's, that's not a God I have to submit to in ongoing trust. It's not a God I'm going to worship, respond to, come what may. It's a God I manage and even manipulate. You know, God, you do good things for me and I won't fire you. I won't kick you out of my life. Do, do we really think that that's what we're owed? I think when we think about it, we realize no. But practically in the, in the middle of life as we're living it, we have these hard things happen and it's like, Lord, you know, what is, what is going on? And the scripture tells us how to do that, how to take it to God like that, how to vent my pain and my anger and my frustration faithfully. But, it, you know, there's this sense we have that, boy, when something goes a little bit off, you know, hey, like it's like, God, are you asleep? Have you missed something? Did you, did you let this sneak in? I thought if I put this kind of work in, I would get this result. But that's not relationship. Any relationship that's meaningful to you has the potential to hurt you. Any relationship that's meaningful to you has the potential to hurt you because you have personal investment. This brings us to the second takeaway. The first one is Job's worst was not purposeless. Even if we don't like the purpose, we're ultimately in the hands of a God who is willing to suffer personally. And this is our second takeaway, this idea that Job's worst was not punishment. Now we know this from the text. God himself says it. Look at chapter 1, verse 8 again. Have you considered my servant Job? Boy, you know, when Job got to heaven, the first question to God must have been, why did you ever bring me up to Satan that day? Have you considered my servant Job, verse 8, chapter 1? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. You know, there's another place in your Old Testament, if you go over to the prophet Ezekiel, where I know we don't spend a lot of time, but if you go to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 14, there's a place there where God says that he would not spare a city if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. God picks those three guys out and says they would get saved. 
but I wouldn't save a city even if those three guys didn't happen. God thought very, very highly of Job. So Job did nothing wrong. His suffering was not punishment. Now his friends think it has to be as they try to do the, the calculus on this. Philosophically will be their entire approach. It's not personal at all with them. They think he had to have done something wrong. And we're going to double back around to their thinking a number of times when we come to them. But we looked at chapter 19 a bit ago where, where he says, you know, my heart faints within me and yet I know I'll see my Redeemer. And we looked at that and, and, and I mentioned that uh, living on this side of the cross versus the side of the cross Job's on, the cross having yet to happen, Job had it harder living that side of the cross of Christ because all Job had was the sense of and the hope of a future redeemer, a rescuer to live him out, lift him out of his suffering, bless him again. We have that redeemer, this side of the cross, one who has blessed us exponentially beyond what we could have asked for or thought of ourselves. And so no matter what comes into our lives, he has remained for us just because he entered our suffering personally. Name another theistic religion whose God does that. Enters personal suffering personally. That doesn't mean Christian faith has an answer for, for everything. We don't, but we have powerful resources for suffering. Such that if you want to know even greater loneliness, it's lonely to suffer, but if you want to know even greater loneliness, intersect with suffering and then abandon God because of it. Say basically, you know, God, I, I can't believe you'd let this happen to me. You, you never realize the power of the resources if you say, because this is happening, God's unworthy of my allegiance, my trust. We actually have it better than Job because the gospel Christ preaches to us is a better word than Job knew. God would enter human suffering himself, enter the very worst of it. What's the very worst of human suffering? To be denied justice. That's the very worst experience of human suffering outside of physical agony is to be denied justice, particularly when you're an innocent. And Jesus would be treated as if he was guilty of every failure, every negligence, every horror in and against people there is. Jesus Christ had all of that flung at him, walked that gauntlet, and got to the other end, walked out of a tomb. And because he did, we personally have it better than Job in that we know something about punishment that Job didn't. Job will think he's being punished. He will cry out, why are you doing this to me? What wrong have I committed? How have I bothered you, God, that you would treat me this way? But what we know, this side of the cross, is that our punishment has been taken for us. Job's not even being disciplined. <laughs> There's a difference between discipline and punishment. We'll get more into that next week. Job is being an example He's not being made an example of if, you know, that's punitive. If, if you made an example of me before the class or the team, you would be, you know, humiliating me. The example of Job is to every power. He said, well, this gets beyond where I, I, I know. I understand that. But, but somehow in the cosmic array of everything that's opposed to God, 
Job is, a, is an example to every power of darkness that exists, every agent of unbelief, physical and spiritual, that God will accomplish his work in his people. And that God calls out of fallen humanity, people for himself who will trust him, come what may, even if every benefit for doing so is stripped away. You know, sometimes preachers will say, hey, you know, it likely won't ever get this bad for you or me. You know, it won't get Jobish for us. And law of averages being what it is, that's probably true, but that's also a pointless point. I mean, so what if it doesn't get his Job bad for you or me? It's not saying anything. The point is not comparison between your experience and his. The point is, can you, will you keep your faith? Keep your trust, keep your hope, keep your love for God when your self-interest isn't being rewarded. When the benefits aren't there. When there's too much of what you don't like and seemingly too little of what you do. Put another way, when the bottom drops out, what is there underneath? I uh, follow um, an author named uh, Rod Dreher. Uh, lives down in Louisiana. Uh, journalist for many years, written a number of books. I've read a handful of them. He maintains a, a website. And he ran last Friday uh, an article on his website in which he shared from his mailbag, his email bag, how people were experiencing this time of isolation and uh, fear. Uh, and, and one of his writers was a Christian from Colorado who uh, was going through a particularly uh, hard financial crunch in this, was watching his income significantly uh, drop and very worried about what it means. Listen to this guy's perspective because um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's true to life for more people than we think. He writes to Rod Dreher, I'm writing to you from Littleton, Colorado. He credits Rod with helping form his thinking on a lot of uh, matters of, of uh, faith intersecting with life. But then he says, however, in the last month or so, I have bristled at you and your writings covering the virus. Because Rod Dreher has been saying to a mostly conservative audience, hey, we need to take this seriously. You know, stop calling this a hoax. Stop saying that doctors don't agree. And so therefore, you know, if CNN says uh, something that it's fake news, stop doing that. He's saying that to conservatives. And so this guy says, hey, I don't like that you're doing that. And he says, I consider myself rational. My college major was biology. My wife is a physician assistant and my brother a doctor. Yet I found myself rebelling at everything that is standing in the way of things returning to normal. Listen to this confessional, how honest this guy is. My faith, which should be sustaining me, is in tatters because things are not normal. I've lived a very comfortable suburban life and have become accustomed to making plans and having a pretty good idea of how things will go. I've always thought Christ is sufficient. And if push came to shove, I'd be able to persevere. But the interruption now and the possibility of real economic ruin has made me realize how weak my faith is. I crave comfort and certainty. I'm being asked to consider the possibility that I may have to sacrifice everything and trust Christ fully, and I don't like it. Like the rich young ruler, this virus is making me consider if I could leave everything and only follow Christ. I'm failing in that. 
And rather than repentance, my heart is hard and my neck is stiff. I'm finding myself unconcerned with the human toll so long as we can return to normal. Now, I, I am not immune to thinking like this man from Colorado, and I don't hold him up to scoff at him. It's actually a good thing he's seeing his heart for what it is. Bless God for times when God shows us what we're really built on, what's really under the floorboards we thought we were standing on, but they give way. And what we actually are standing on when the bottom drops out, in his case, isolation and financial setback that's really severe, more severe than he ever thought he'd face, he sees what's really underneath and knows it really isn't faith. It's some alloy. It's some substitute. It's, some, it's not counterfeit, but it's not, it's not genuine. And he wants it to be. He wants it to be. And I share his story because it reinforces our need for durable faith. There's a line out of Jeremiah where God says to Jeremiah, who, wasn't, who didn't consider himself a very strong person, God says, you know, if you've run with men and they've worn you out, how will you compete with horses? And what he's basically saying to Jeremiah is, look, if this time, if in this time and season your faith is weak, what happens if it really amps up? What happens if the ante rises to, to critical redlining places? What do you do then? And God's not taunting the prophet in saying that. God is caring for us in saying this. He's saying to us, I've never promised you a, a life free of pain and tragedy and trial. I've never promised you that. You follow a crucified Savior. What does that say to us? It says that the troubles he encountered, I'm likely to encounter. Maybe not exactly the same, but troubles of some kind because the world has fallen. It has to be. I'm not allowed to just skate through. And so I share that man's story because it reinforces our need for durable faith, which none of you will get by trying to muster it up within. Well, I just need to believe more. I just need to have more faith. Yeah? Pray for me, brother, that I'll have more faith. Now, you make gains in the direction of more faith, greater faith, when you realize, hey, you know what? I'm pretty far away from Job. I don't think I would respond like this. In fact, in the trials and tragedies in my life, I kind of responded like this and kind of didn't. I don't consider myself in the same league with Job at all. Job shames me when I look at his response. This is a godly man. And God saw it. But when I'm far away from Job and how my faith handles setbacks and sufferings, you know what that means? It just needs, that means I need to get closer to Jesus. And the good news in this is that the Lord welcomes that. His arms are always like this. They're always open to us. You can always come back. You can always get near. You don't have to prove yourself. He's not asking that of us. No. The book of Job is not for lashing out at ourselves for how weak our faith may be in comparison to his. Everybody's weak, faith is weak in comparison to Job's. What Job does for us is what all the greats in Scripture do. They lead us back to where we started. To faith, confidence in the demonstrated goodness of our Savior who was durable for us because God knew we couldn't be. 
and yet is cultivating the same durability in us. Come what may. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful for Job and for his ongoing witness and testimony even before the cross to an understanding that the reality of the cross would come. He didn't know how. He didn't know the means. But he had an inkling. He had a, a suspicion. He, he realized in some way, shape, or form that the only way we could find a hope and a meaning in the sufferings we incur here is if God suffered and suffered on our behalf. And that's exactly what you've done in your son. Lord, help us. We know our faith is weak. We know it's not where we want it to be. But, but don't let us just settle into that and act like, okay, that's just how it's going to be. Uh, aggravate us in that, irritate us in that, not so that we go trying to prove how strong we are in faith, but that we just want to grow. It, it bothers us to not be near to you. It bothers us to, to, to protect this little pet sin over here. It, it bothers us to, to, to listen to ourselves spout off these easygoing resentments and castigations and grudges and, and that you would liberate us from that, that you would show us again that you, you suffered so that we have life and have it to the full. You've shown us goodness in Christ. We pray that we will not live up to it, but we'll live into it. For that is what you call us to do and be. And we thank you for your servant Job, who had it worse than we did and not knowing who Jesus Christ is but knowing who God is. And we know that God's name now is Jesus. And we thank you for his testimony and all the ways you care for us in Christ's name. Amen.